Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows, handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Paul Holston from Howard University in Washington, D.C. I'm Minia Shabazz from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. And I'm Kyla Wright from Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. Hello, everybody. Now, while some of you are still celebrating or cursing the Warriors' championship win over Cleveland, the NBA is focusing on the next generation of players and the future of the league. In studio, we have a legend and a guest who's covered countless NBA drafts, 20 NBA finals, nine World Series, five Super Bowls, seven Olympics, and that's just the start of Bob Ryan's resume. Uh, Bob's a sports writer who started covering the Celtics in 1969, the same year he got married, and he went on to be a guest host in television shows like The Sports Reporters, where we were colleagues for almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Pardon the Interruption, you, you continue to see him on Pardon the Interruption, Around the Horn. He's also got his own podcast, Bob Ryan, Boston Podcast. Bob Ryan, welcome to the show. Hello, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I know. That should, that should get him applause. You know, that first draft, I got to tell you quickly, the first draft, the uh, <clears throat> 1970 draft that I covered, uh, it, how the league has changed everybody. Uh, it was a conference call uh, in each of the cities. So we're, that, that was a 14-team league then. And there was in each of the cities there was a conference call. We walked into Red Auerbach's office. There was a little squawk box on the on his desk, and that's how we heard. That's how the draft was conducted. Wow. He went wow. Boston Celtics take, and that, that year it was um, Dave Cowens. Boston Celtics take oh. Dave Cowens at number four by speaking into the squawk box, and and then around the league. And uh, one quick sorry, uh, someone was uh, took a, a player that uh, everybody laughed. You could hear oh, wow. the laughter of the general managers around the league. Uh, I, I, I don't even want to embarrass the heirs of that young man, uh, but uh, was he any good? Did, did, no, did the, the laughter was warranted, as it turned out. <laughs> but that is—that's the NBA of 1970. Could you tell us who it was? Oh, I'll tell you later. I'd rather okay. probably right. get laughed than booed. I'll probably take the laugh. That's I don't even know what a squawk box is. To be you honest. tell what a squawk box is. No, 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 no. You're dealing with. You're dealing with. She's okay. 19, 20 years old. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was just a little device about as large as um, what can we call it? The largest. Well, I'm trying to give a, a comparison. Like yeah, a couple. Of, uh, you know, maybe about six or seven inches in circumference. Okay. And uh, it, it was just a device where you could hear uh, what was on the other side, and the, the, through the technology of the time, uh, there was one in each city, and and you could hear from the central location. Of the, the league office uh, where the draft was conducted here in Madison Square Garden in, in New York at the days those days um, that you, everyone had a squawk box where they could hear and they could speak back into it and that's the way it was done and uh, you know forget about TV are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys have seen typewriters right? You know typewriters. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Don't play with us. I'm not that. Right. Uh, yeah. Hey, so so Bob. I mean, we want to talk about your career and all that, but before we get into your career and the draft, have you ever seen a parent like uh, Levar Ball? Not at the professional level. I think every high school coach in America has, or maybe even every youth soccer coach or every little league baseball coach, has dealt with a, an obstreperous parent or a, a big or a, you know overbearing parent. And now we call them helicopter parents. Or, right. you know, but but on a, a, and then in colleges sometimes too. But this 
looming large over a professional draft pick is a new thing. There's never been anyone. The, the, the one reference you may be hearing and may have heard already with Todd Marinovich, mm. when it was a quarterback yeah. of about 25 years ago who was SC, and his father was a, 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 a hovering uh, parent. But, uh, but he was basically he, he was a domineering parent. He, it wasn't anywhere near as, as, as vocal uh, and, and as boastful as, as uh, LaVar Ball is. But uh, he was, uh, you may hear that reference now and then, but believe me, there was no comparison. There's never been anything like LaVar Ball. Taking it back to the draft, um, yeah. you know, it is coming next week. What potential draft picks are you excited about? Of course, you know, Boston Celtics having the yeah. number one yeah. uh, draft pick. A lot of mock drafts sort of predicting that Markel Fultz will go to the Boston Celtics, but what, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's interesting uh, because there's a lot of likable players. A lot of players who in, a, in many years would be the consensus number one pick and said there's a, there might be as many as six of them this year, mm-hmm. and, and, and you have to throw in, and one of them is a guy that uh, uh, people uh, are going to hear more about. That's Dennis Smith at North Carolina State, mm-hmm. uh, who some people think and, uh, is as good a guard as any of these guys, and he's going to go high. Then you have to, have to throw in the, the French uh, young man, uh, he's uh, he's a six five guard uh, who uh, apparently has some of the same floor vision and skills that Lonzo has apparently, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, he's going to be in that draft. But I'm uh, I'm curious about um, the Aaron Fox uh, because and whether the Lakers, uh, as some people still think, uh, and a lot of people think, ought to take over Lonzo Ball. And, of course, they did have one head-to-head confrontation that people are going to be able to cite in which uh, De'Aaron Fox uh, had the upper hand by a, a substantial margin. Uh, his team, his classmate, excuse me, his teammate, um, Malik Monk, who dropped 47 in, uh, on a, in a big game on TV this year, is uh, uh, going to go very high. It's going to be uh, interesting to see. So uh, this, uh, I, got, I have a guy that I, uh, I'm a champion of, and, and I want to see how high he goes, and I'm, I just can't believe they're talking about him so low. I like Caleb Swanigan of Purdue. Mm. And, mm. and for teams mm. such as the Celtics, who need a rebounder who can score, uh, excuse me, that's what, he looks like he's a rebounder who can score. The knock on him is going to be defense and, and his body type and all that. Uh, I, I, I'm curious to see where he goes because they're talking about 15 to 20, and I can't believe this. You think I, he'll I, go top 10? I, I don't know. I, apparently he won't. And I, I, I want to know what, what am I? I want to see what I'm missing here. But I'm, that's a guy I'm keeping my eye on. I want to, I, I want to see where where uh, Caleb Swanigan goes. Okay, so we saw you on the uh, Thirty for Thirty documentary. That was really interesting. It was great. I wanted film. to, yeah, it was. I wanted to know how do you compare the. Celtics and the Lakers mm-hmm. versus the Warriors and the Cavs. Well, that's a great question because the two teams you cited are the two teams I think would give them the best fight, the 86 Celtics and the 87 Lakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the game, the three, po- the games are so markedly different. The three-point shot is the determinant thing in the game today. I heard a stat uh, yesterday that blew my mind, and, and, but I, I'm not, I, I really did. I mean, you knew it, but you didn't know the scope. There were over 1,000, I think 1,100 some odd points scored by the two teams in the, in the five games of the NBA Finals. Mm-hmm. 28 of them were in the post play. Twenty eight wow. were, were mm. by throwing the ball into someone low and having him score. I'm not talking about driving to the basket. Mm-hmm. We're talking about yeah. post play, pure mm. back to the basket or or face and close in play. Twenty eight. Uh, now in 1986, right. I promise you that if there were 1,100 <laughs> points scored by the Boston Celtics, that about 800 of them would have been scored by right. people posting up, mm-hmm. like Harris, Pale, or Bird. Uh, it, the game is so markedly different. Um, and yet, and so in trying to compare them, you have to factor in the three-point uh, factor there, or and the fact that the Warriors would have had no chance to stop Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, uh, in, down low. Well, the, Zaza truly is not stopping those guys. I'm right. sorry, he's just not. And and uh, that that but so would would they score enough twos to offset all the Warrior threes? That's mm-hmm. number one. 
Number two, though, Larry Bird was a three-point shooter. That's just they just didn't emphasize it that much. He didn't, you yeah. know, they were a little more judicious. Uh, it wasn't the game the way it is now. And he could have made. He would have taken a lot more because of his if build. He, he would have taken a lot more. Would have made him. Scott Wedman was a three-point shooter. Danny Ainge was a three-point shooter. They had three certified three-point shooters, but the game wasn't oriented to it. So if they had right. to adjust. They could have made that adjustment. Right. So right. I think it would be an end of the Lakers. Magic was in his prime. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had plenty left in the tank. James Worthy was in his prime. Michael Cooper was in his prime. Uh, they, they, uh, Byron Scott was young in, in his prime, in a prime. Um, I think that team would have given this uh, this Warrior team a, a hard time as well. Where, where, where do you weigh in? You know, throughout the playoffs, there's all this the debate: of who's the greatest? I mean, we talk about it all the time. Sure. Who's the great? So, curious. I mean, who's the great? I just wrote a column for the undefeated, mm-hmm. and I said that because I kept hearing this debate about Michael and LeBron, and I said, well, wait a minute. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has got to be in that conversation. I read your column. It was yeah. very well presented. When I, when I'm looking, but who, who are yours? Here's the problem. Here's my problem with that. And uh, oh, not a problem. My, my, my take on it. My, right. I always say that you, can't, you have to have two discussions. You have to eliminate the centers. You, if, if, the, if the argument is, it's an artistic argument. We're not talking about effect and, 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 right. and force. We're talking about it's an artistic uh, argument, okay? The best all around. If, if, you, if in parentheses it means all around player. So we're talking about all the skills passing, dribbling, shooting, rebounding, and defense, etc. Right. And as a rule, centers aren't asked to have all the skills. They have specific skills to the center. And in the old days, you know, they controlled the game far, obviously far more than any center mm-hmm. does today. So I separate them right away the, the, uh, uh, because it's a, if you include the centers, they're going to be there. Any discussion, Bill, in my opinion, of the best 10 players in NBA history and probably even the best five, mm-hmm. you have three centers. You have, Wilt, in some order, Russell. you have Wilt, you have Russell, and you have Kareem. Among the five greatest players, I agree with you, but that's not the argument that we're having here. This LeBron-Michael uh, 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 argument is about all-around play. It's about this range of skill. If you're talking about the most effective and forces in the history of basketball, those three guys, we, those three big guys are in, in the top five. Mm-hmm. And now you've you got LeBron Magic and, and, and uh, uh, you got, uh, excuse me, LeBron, Michael, Magic, Larry, and, and let's not forget Oscar Robertson. And, uh, and I right. think that's, mm-hmm. and Kobe. Well, that's, see, I also tend to look at, I mean, yeah, of course, well, you know how it is. We make these arguments. You, you tailor the facts to your argument. Oh, that's, so that's I, what debating's <laughs> all about. <laughs> so I, so I, I want to look at the totality. Yeah, when you, right. when, you know, since he started playing, like they said, well, you know, Michael got cut. Kareem never got cut. Oh, Kareem was a star in eighth grade. Right. He never got cut from anything. People knew who he was at St. Jude here, St. Jude grade school, right up in, right. on the, on the uh, west on the west side. Right. And, uh, he, yeah, the west side, right. And then he went to Power Memorial, 10th and 50th at New York, and, and uh, right, right on the west side. That's yeah. right. Well, you, you, know, you grew up you were like right New down, Jersey. Yeah, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Trenton, right? Not, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Trenton, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right down the road. So you were very fluent. You saw the rise of Kareem. I mean, you saw the rise of a lot of folks. I was well aware of him, and I was so excited. And when, when and he came uh, to uh, his senior year, the, uh, they came to Trenton and December of 1963 to play Cathedral High School of Trenton. And we're all excited. Everybody's excited to see the great Lou Alcindor. And we go to the game. And guess what? The Cathedral coach, Wally Collender, he thought he, he wanted to win the game. You know what that meant? He held the ball. Oh. He held the ball. Oh. I will never, I'll go to my grave. I can tell you, I know the, the increments. It was 5 1 at the end of the first quarter. Mm. It was 13 to 7 at the half. It was 35 13. It was 19 to 13 at the end of three quarters and 35 13 final. They held the ball, and he stood in the back of a 2 3 zone with his hands on his hips the whole night. Uh. And that's not what we paid to see, uh. you know, to see the great Lou Alcindor. Uh, well, you know, that, I mean, that was a terrible thing. I'm, I'm sorry, but that was a terrible thing about uh, North Carolina and Dean Smith. I mean, it took me a long time to. 
I mean, Dean's a good guy. I mean, it took me a long time to get over the four corners. Oh, yeah. You know, well, I mean, just, you know. Well, was, thank God the shot clock took care of that. You, you made the leap like a lot of us did from print. Because I was always there. Were a lot of there were a lot of people in our profession who resisted it. Oh yeah, they just resisted. But oh. early on, you saw it. And, and then, frankly, I mean, you're 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 going to be doing. Uh, you just did Round the Horn. You're going to be doing PTI. You've really latched on to. I mean, did you just did you just happen to anticipate the play? Or I mean, how did you? Felt well. I mean, in terms of first of all, I did my first radio show, uh, a fill-in host, in the summer of 1971. Mm. Uh, so I go back that far with radio, uh, and I did actually host a show. Uh, you know, I've, heard, I've co-hosted and hosted many, many times on Boston Radio. But in terms of the television thing, uh, it just fell out of the sky uh, uh, that I wound up doing this stuff on ESPN. I had done some, uh, you know, just some interview hits for them, and then I got a phone call in uh, fall of 19, uh, sometime in 1989, from uh, Joe Valerio, yeah. who was an old acquaintance, and we weren't buddy buddy, but we knew each other. We had gone out to lunch a few times. He had once worked for the New York Post yeah. back in the yeah. 70s. And I got to know him. And then he went into television producing ABC and CBS. And now he's got hold of this show called The Sports Reporters yeah. and asked me if I'd like to be on it. And, and that started it. And that was in 89. And until May 7th, when we did our final show this year, yeah. uh, I was a part of that show. And, uh, uh, and then that led to be, they knew me at ESPN. And uh, I was a charter member of, of uh, Around the Horn, and, and, uh, uh. And, which is, itself is a spinoff of PTI. Yeah. Were it not for PTI, there'd be no Around the Horn. Yeah. And uh, that's a spinoff. Off and, and um, uh, I'm still on that, and uh, and that's how that got done, and and, uh, and I just lucked into it. I mean, if, if and I just always tell the story, and you know the uh, young uh, youngins. I got to tell you, you're going to hear us. It's the gospel truth. It isn't what you know; it's who you know. I mean, it's the truth. Sadly, that's true so often. And in my case, if someone else had bought that show rather than Joe Valerio, mm. that guy would have hired his old friends, right. and I wouldn't have included me. Mm. And so that opened the door for a whole other life for me. That's how I about Bill. So that opened the door for an entire other <laughs> life for me. And if Joe Valerio didn't done that, then uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, all that part of my life would have been totally different or non-existent. Mm. Usually, um, people talk about journalists, you know, that they're the enemy. And I read that you often, you know, would hang out with the Boston Celtics players. Oh, how yeah. did, how in the world did you develop this type of relationship with them? And I, I'm, I'm just really curious. The world was different then. It wasn't. It wasn't automatically uh, us versus them. It was a more like we're all in this together kind mm. of thing. And I, I think I demonstrated a, a, an enormous enthusiasm for the sport. I loved basketball, and I had a lot of questions to ask because what of my orientation had been college. I was always, a, and, and I'm not so much the NBA. So I needed to learn the nuances of the NBA. And, and two things were good. One was that they had a rookie coach named Tom Heinsohn who uh, himself. Uh, was smart enough to know that it was good to cultivate the representative of the most important media outlet in New England, which was the Boston Globe by uh-huh. far in 1969. Yeah. And secondly, some veterans who were just good people, such as John Havlicek, Sat Sanders, Don Nelson, and they they were happy to welcome me in and and you know and, and teach teach me the game about NBA basketball too. And I we just hit it off, and it was no you you I. It was a natural thing to do, uh, to uh, hang out. I would go to practice, say, an hour before it started, and we just walk in and sit down in the locker room, and, and we just talk. It had nothing to do with it. No, no notebook, just talk. I got to know their, their kids' names and their wives' names and their brothers' names, mm. and, you know, and, 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 and we talked. And, and then I'd pull out the notebook after practice, then, you know, to get the story that I was going to do. And, uh, but I was the only one there. As w- for most of the time, mm-hmm. uh, the only one. Mm-hmm. Now you know every. Uh, it got to the point where they closed practices in part because there were so many people. It was just getting they couldn't account for all the people. Uh, that's part of the reasons. But 
anyway, it was a natural thing to do. And, and uh, it did lead to, I was virtually close, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it kind of warned me. And after seven years, I needed to get out. I needed to get away. Uh, I covered the league for seven years, and then I took a break and got off it. Yeah. Okay. And so I got back to it two different times. So mm-hmm. I went up covering over 14 years over a stretch of time from 1969 to 88. I did it three different times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I did it seven years, four years, and two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll end out the segment with this question. So as you know, the six Roden Fellows are all aspiring, rising journalists. You know, we're all, you know, new to this thing a little. So I want to know with your vast experience that you have with print, with broadcast, you know, with television, radio, we're all trying to still figure out our niche. What advice would you give to us? Well, the number one advice, and, and it doesn't, and it applies even for a broadcasting uh, idea rather than a, a print, is, is reading. Read, read, read. You can't be a writer without a, be a reader. And if the more you read, the more you, you stimulate. It's, it's like the, a muscle. It's like it's like going to the gym for your body. It's 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 going to the gym for your brain. Uh, you 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 don't know exactly how that this word that you just learned is going to come into play, or mm-hmm. this concept is going to come into play, or when you're going to you're going to uh, reference something that you just read that's going to be, oh wow. I mean, it's it's all inherent. But the read and, and at least half of what you read, it's got to be non-sports. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's got to, and, and uh, to me, there isn't a day that goes by when you should never go to bed without feeling, well, I got everything done. I needed to read today. No, you'll never, you're never going to do it all, but you <laughs> need to do the best you can. Uh, that's number one. And, and number two, I think it's good to find at least one, if it's a sport, one sport uh, that you really nail, you know, you really, uh, it, it, you need to know a little bit about a lot, but I, I think it's good to really find one. In my case, I had two baseball and basketball, but, um, I made no secret of the fact that, that I, I like them best and, and I know more about them. But I just think to have some area where they, you know, my, I'm associated with basketball, you know, and even though my heart was always a little bit more with baseball, but I'm associated with basketball. And, and, and it's, I think it's good to have one sport where you, you really can master that, 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 that mm-hmm. world. Our guest has been the great Bob Ryan, star of stage and screen <laughs> and a jazz guy. In fact, we're going to be going to the Louis Armstrong house tomorrow. We've been talking about doing that. Well, long we long have. Time. So I'm very excited. We're going to be going to the Louis Armstrong House in Me Queens. And, yeah. uh, it's I'm starting be to become a jazz enthusiast. Yeah, so I mean, hopefully I can catch up with you guys. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll Give me some vinyl, that. please. Just I a got, couple. I got time. We were coming to I got about 500 albums. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got, I got all Any my that albums, you don't want, so. please share them my way. <laughs> um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Kimberly Martin from Newsday about what to expect in the upcoming NFL season and what it's like to be a woman in a very male-dominated field. We'll be right back. Now we're going to be speaking to the only African-American woman beat writer covering the NFL for a major publication. The great Kimberly Martin is on the phone from an undisclosed location from, <laughs> from New Jersey. She covers the NFL for Newsday. Kimberly, what's happening? I'm good. How are you guys? So, Kimberly, you attended uh, Wesleyan University and you studied psychology and African-American studies, both interesting majors. How did you make that transition to journalism? Um, <laughs> it, 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 my story is a, a little strange to um, people because, like you said, I was a psych major, AFAM, double major. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got out of school, I worked in finance for a year and a half. So the fact that if you had told me 10 years ago that I'd be 
a Jets beat writer in New York City, there's no way I would uh, believe you. But I basically was in finance, and I was at my cubicle one day, and I was like, I'm really bored. I need to do something more creative. And I always knew that writing was going to be the thing that I was going to do. Mm. And I always loved sports. Um, and I, unlike a lot of people that study journalism undergrad, you know, I didn't have the clips or the experience. So I said, all right, let me just apply to some grad schools and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So I ended up applying at my at my office desk one day, and I applied to Syracuse, and uh, the rest is history, the rest is I guess. history and legend. <laughs> <laughs> this is Kyla. Yeah, it's... Um... Okay, this is Kyla from Hampton, and I have a, a question that... Um, so recently at the Jets minicamp, we were all reporting. The Roden Fellows were there reporting. And myself and Paul were in the locker room with you and a, a lot of other journalists. And I noticed that a lot of the football players were kind of looking at me like I was, quote, unquote, fresh meat. And, you know, I know that you've been doing this for over 10 years. And, you know, you're you're in the industry. Has the same thing happened to you? Or have you had any occurrences that are similar with the way that players and coaches have interacted with you, with you being a female in such a male-dominated industry? Yeah, that's going to um, that's gonna happen. I think, um, you know, uh, a female face and a black female face obviously will raise eyebrows in a professional locker room, only because there aren't a lot of us, especially that cover the NFL, and I, I cover baseball, too. So, um, you know, your face is, your face is pretty rare in, in those arenas. Um, but yeah, I've had, I mean, let's face it, like I've had, I've had players hit on me, you know, mm. people, you know, just stuff, ha- but stuff happens. Um, you know, those sort of, uh, those sort of incidents that, you know, they happen and you kind of have to figure out. It took me a while to figure out how to handle those situations. Yeah, how, how did you deal with that? I'm curious. How, how did you deal with that? I mean, the first you know, time because there nobody ta- nobody teaches you a at this stage um, at this level nobody really teaches you how to be a beat writer. So you just kind of are thrown in and you sink or swim. On top of that, um, I don't think a lot of editors or your colleagues, because a lot of them, most of them are male, they don't consider the added pressure of being a female so you kind of have to just navigate it on your own for example my first year I wasn't even a beat writer I was just the Jets backup for a couple seasons and I would walk in the locker room I would have a stank face on just because I wanted all the players to know that I was just here to get some quotes write my stories do my job and go home mm-hmm. and I thought that was the best way to handle it to just have that you know i'm from brooklyn so just have that like me mug or whatever <laughs> oh yeah i'm but, from detroit i understand that one <laughs> but but you know that didn't stop you know there was one player in particular who um was pretty aggressive isn't the word but he was just consistent with it mm. um to the point where i had to i had to talk to um you know members of the PR staff at that point um and it you know the player got upset whatever um but what i learned is is what I realized now um, is that I was so worried about being known as somebody causing trouble because I'm you know one of the few female faces in there I'm the only black girl I don't want this player who now doesn't like me because 
I'm not going to go on a date with him mm. to then tell other players, like, you know, make up whatever to, mm. to disparage me or anything like that. That was my fear. So that was, that weighed heavily on me because I, because in the beginning, I just wanted to fit in. I wanted the football players to look at me like I was one of the guys as far as the other male reporters. I wanted them to know that Kim was no different from that dude. And, you know, she's coming here to get a quote or a story or whatever. But, you know, benefit of hindsight and some experience, I realized, you know, looking, being considered one of the guys is actually the worst thing for me. Because I'm not, I'm not one of the guys. Like, um, the fact that I am an African-American woman in a covering a male-dominated sport, covering mostly with white men, I stand out. And that's a good thing for me, um, more often than not. And I have to. There's just certain things that come with the gig when you're when you're a woman covering sports. It, it, you kind of just have to navigate it. You kind of just have to deal with it. You the same way. Okay, walking down the street in New York City, you're gonna get hit on. You're gonna have people say inappropriate things. But it's, in a football locker room, that doesn't happen as often as you know some might assume. But when it does. You know, it can't shake your confidence. It can't make you worry about, oh, you know, what is this guy saying about me or how will this affect my standing? As long as you do your job and you carry yourself with respect in there and you make it known, like, yeah, that's nice, but I'm really just trying to get your thoughts on <laughs> the next opponent and I'm trying to get out of here, you, you'll be okay. How do they view you now, the players that you, the, that you cover? I think for me, the easiest thing for me is navigating a, a locker room. Um, because, and I think my personality, I'm somebody that likes people in general. But I think the fact that I was a psych major, the fact that I did work in finance, that I have other experience outside of being a sports writer isn't the only thing I've been. Um, and being a sports writer isn't the only thing that I had aspired to be. So, you know, I'm real curious about other people. Um, so I go up to players, you know, we talk about their families, their kids, their wives, their mothers. I know a lot of mothers <laughs> of, of players. Mm. Um, I'm really comfortable. Um, and perhaps it's because a lot of the players look like me. I don't know. Maybe some of them um, look at me um, like, uh, I don't know, maybe they, maybe the fact that I am black, that, that helps. Um, but in the same way that some some male reporters, they're into sneakers, they're into video games, they're into whatever. So they gravitate towards players because of their interests. I think, you know, you kind of have to just be yourself and you'll find connections with certain players, certain coaches, just based on some of the similarities you share. So the guys know, like, basically what I hear all the time is Kim is cool. Um, I mean, she's still a reporter, but she's cool. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, that's what you want. They know that I'm not out to play the gotcha set em up game with, you know, these gotcha quotes. But at the end of the day, I ha even if we're cool, I still have to do my job and report on, on stories or situations that they may not want to talk about, but I still have to. Hey, Kimberly, this is Paul from Howard. So along the same lines, uh, recently the New York Times published an article about how men interrupt and talk over women in many industries. Uh, a good example recently is this week, 
uh, when Sen- Senator Kamala Harris, uh, while she was questioning Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, many of the other, uh, her colleagues sort of talked over her. Have you experienced this with colleagues, you know, in in the, the, the industry that you're in, specifically at Jets, or where you've been working, a uh, former at the record? Um, no, I think, though, the Jets beat, they're on, you know, every every sports beat is, is tough, especially in the NFL, but I think the Jets beat in itself is a different sort of monster, um, the level of competition, uh, the personalities that we've got. So at times, everybody is, you know, cutting everybody off, mm-hmm. and it, it has nothing to do with gender necessarily or, or anything or race or anything like that. Um, I think, though, the challenge um, that I face is in a saturated media market, how do you differentiate yourself? And on one hand, you, you could say, oh, well, you're a black woman. You should stand out pretty easily. That's true, but I think... Um, you know, I, I think it, it is sometimes difficult for for female beat writers to get the same sort of recognition as their male counterparts, and and sometimes that has to do with experience or or whatever. But I think from fans, sometimes from players, you know, the constantly needing to prove that you know what you're doing, you know what you're talking about, um, that's something that that the guys that I work with don't necessarily, most of them don't necessarily have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But I think on a day-to-day basis, you are confronted, whether it's via Twitter, email, like I said, in the locker room, um, you just have to always be prepared to prove to somebody that there's a reason you have the job that you have. Um, I, you know, we all know Twitter trolls are, are out there in full force and you're always reminded that, um, you know, people want to know why I'm I'm in the locker room instead of in the kitchen. You know, mm-hmm. these, like, outdated, yeah. like, wow. cliched um, yeah. digs. Yeah. You know, but but it, it, it comes with the territory. And um, but I think they tend to be the criticisms tend to be not just you're stupid, but then they take on a more vile um, tone. And I think that also comes with it. So maybe you don't have maybe I don't experience it as much as my colleagues that sort of um, gender difference and need it, you know, needing to sort of, you know, throw some elbows, like give me some room so I can, I can get in here. Um, you, you deal with it in other aspects. Well, you know, Kim, you've been doing a sensational job and it's tough because jets have been challenging. Mm. Um, but, <laughs> That's one way to put it. Yeah. Um, but listen, hey, Kimberly, thank you so much. Um, Kimberly uh, Martin is a former uh, National Association of Black Journalists, emerging journalist. Uh, I was there when she got the award. Congratulations. Um, but hey, Kimberly, thank you so much for, for being on the line with us. Uh, you do a, a wonderful job of covering the Jets. Uh, you're, you're, you're tough, you're thorough, and you're a really, really nice person. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> hey, so we'll see you on the trail. And uh, Kimberly, thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you soon. But thanks so much, Kimberly. Thank you, guys. That was Kimberly Martin. Um, now, before we close out the show, I'm going to turn it over to the fellows to leave you with a few thoughts to consider. Uh, Paul leads off. Florida A&M University will no longer be the primary location of the Black Television News Channel 
a new 24-hour multi-platform network that would be the first African-American news network scheduled to launch in February 2018. According to a Tallahassee Democrat, network partners will launch from another location in Tallahassee. This recent update comes just four months after a ribbon-cutting ceremony that was held on campus back in February. A statistic from a RTDNA Hofstra University survey on women and minority employment and local broadcasting showed that just 10% of the local television news workforce was black in 2013, a decline from 12% in 2009, according to its most recent available data. At a time where black representation in the media is vital and important to inform our communities, it is also important to have these spaces available to HBCUs whose students would greatly benefit from the resource. I urge not only FAMU, but also all HBCUs to consider this. When an opportunity arises to create opportunities for black journalists to excel and grow, don't just let it go. Otherwise, we get stuck fighting for a seat at the table instead of just creating one. Thanks, Paul. Minia. I grew up on the reruns of The Cosby Show while reading and watching the character Little Bill. I used to rent seasons of Cosby from the library and just binge watch for hours. Bill Cosby is now on trial for sexual assault and faces three charges of aggravated indecent assault. Being shocked was an understatement. After four days, the jury deliberated for 40 hours and still could not come to a decision. In a way... I feel like the jury. A part of me believes that justice needs to be served if he committed the crime, and the other part of me feels that he's innocent with the plethora of women that came forward. I should be able to separate the character from real life, but I just can't. TV One and Bounce TV have recently re-aired the popular sitcom, and I have to wonder, do they think he's guilty? Consider this. Would America have immediately pegged him guilty if it were not for his lovable dad character? Thank you, Anita. Kyla. Actor, comedian, and philanthropist Steve Harvey is under fire again after making some controversial comments about the Flint water crisis. During his show, The Steve Harvey Morning Show, a caller from Flint, Michigan, said that the Cavaliers didn't deserve anything after losing the finals. Harvey was apparently incensed by this and responded, enjoy your brown water. He then went on to question the last time Flint had clean water without lead in it. I am from Michigan, and I was extremely offended by these remarks. They were insensitive and out of control. Harvey's co-host tried to calm him down, but he continued insulting the caller and refused to apologize. What's more, he tried to justify his crude behavior. His excuse was that he's a Cleveland fan and that his aim wasn't to insult the city, just the caller. Consider this, Steve Harvey, you failed. You definitely insulted the city and made light of a serious public health issue that has affected thousands of African Americans. Throw some money at Flint, not shade. Thank you very much, Kyla. And that's it for our show today. We'd like to thank our guest, Kimberly Martin, the great Bob Ryan, of course, our Roden Fellows. And if you'd like to cover us or you'd like to get in contact with us or if you've got comments or all of it, email us at rodenfellows at gmail.com. Thank you. See you next week. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Tony Chow and Martin Onabel are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as All Day. What are those? And Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. 
Have a great week, everybody.